My dear prince, my poor spellbound prince, today is the day I take you to your true kingdom, away from this world of distant dreams and fantasy. Today you will join me in my world, where I will care for you, nurture you, prepare you for your true destiny. You'll fear for nothing. You'll want for nothing. For you will hear only what I tell you and act only as I decree. It's all for the best, my precious and valiant knight. For our future together, where I will reign... <laughs> that is to say, we will reign victorious. Now, come, my prince. Come. <laughs> Hello, I'm Douglas Gresham, your host for Focus on the Family Radio Theatre. C.S. Lewis, or Jack as his friends knew him, spent most of his life teaching and writing in Oxford. He shared a house called The Kilns with his brother Warren. In the 50s, Jack met my mother, Joy Davidman, and they were married, and my brother and I became part of the family at The Kilns. One of the mainstays at the house was Fred Paxford, who served as a handyman, gardener and occasional cook for over 30 years. Everyone else called him Paxford, but he and I became friends, and I was allowed the single honour of calling him Fred. Fred was an Oxfordshire countryman through and through. He knew the ways of animals and plants better than anyone, and he knew what it was to be a young boy, which may be why we became such close friends. He was a simple and earthy man, who might be called a cheerful, eternal pessimist. If you said good morning to him, he might reply, Ah, looks like rain afore lunch, though, if it don't snow or ail, that is. <laughs> I mention him now because Fred was the inspiration for one of Narnia's best-loved characters, Puddleglum, in The Silver Chair, the story you're about to hear. The story itself was originally called The Wild Wastelands, but the publisher wanted something else, so it became consecutively Knights Under Narnia, Gnomes Under Narnia, News Under Narnia, and then finally The Silver Chair. Hmm. If you remember the ending to The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, then you may recognize how this story seems to begin where it left off, with Eustace in a strange country that seems to belong only to Aslan. Only now, Eustace is with his friend Jill, and they have to be sent to Narnia in one of the strangest ways found in any of the seven books. So without further delay, Focus on the Family Radio Theatre presents The Silver Chair. It was a dull autumn day, and Jill Pole was crying behind the gym. She was crying because they'd been bullying her. This is not going to be a school story, so I shall say as little as possible about Jill's school, which is not a pleasant subject. It was co-educational, a school for both boys and girls, 
or what used to be called a mixed school, though some said it was not nearly so mixed as the minds of the people who ran it. These people had the idea that boys and girls should be allowed to do what they liked, and unfortunately what 10 or 15 of the biggest boys and girls liked best was bullying others. The headmistress at an ordinary school would have found out and put a stop to it, or the bullies would have been expelled or punished. But the headmistress at this school said they were interesting psychological cases and talked to the bullies for hours. And if you knew the right sort of things to say to the headmistress, the main result was that you became rather a favorite than otherwise. And that was why Jill Pole was crying on that dull autumn day on the damp little path which runs between the back of the gym and the shrubbery. She hadn't finished her cry when a boy came round the corner. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, can't you look where you're going? I didn't see you there, so you need to start... Oh, I say. Jill, what's wrong? Oh, go away. It's them, isn't it? They've been bullying you again, haven't they? Mind your own business. Now look here. There's no good us all getting Don't ups. lecture me, Eustace. Nobody asked you to come barging in, did they? Besides, you're as bad as they are. Am I? You spent the whole of last term sucking up to them and bowing to everything they wanted. Hey, that's not fair. Have I been doing anything of the sort this term? Didn't I stand up to Carter about the rabbit? And, and didn't I keep the secret about Spivins? Under torture, too. And didn't all I even... Right. All right. I don't know, and I don't care. <sighs> Would you like a peppermint? Yes, please. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, Eustace. I wasn't being fair about what I said. You're not as bad now as you were last term. Forget about last term if you can. I was a little tick then. Well, honestly, you were. Hmm. So you think there's been a change? It's not only me. Everyone's been saying so. Some of us like it. But they don't, you know. They liked it better when you were on their side. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I'd better watch out then. <laughs> so, what happened? What do you mean? Why are you so different now? Ah, uh, well, a lot of strange things happened to me during the summer. What sort of things? <laughs> you wouldn't believe me. Why wouldn't I? Because... Look here, Jill. Can I trust you? <gasps> Thanks a lot. <laughs> I mean it, Jill. This is a really terrific secret. And if I thought you'd tell anyone else or, or laugh at me, I... Do I look like someone who's about to laugh? Hmm. And who would I tell? Right now, you seem to be the only friend I have. But it's more than that. Supposing I told you I'd been to a place where animals can talk, and where there are enchantments and dragons, and, well, all the sorts of things you'd have in fairy tales. What would you say to that? Well, how did you get there? The only way you can, by magic. Magic? I was with two cousins of mine. We were just whisked away to this wonderful world. And then we had some amazing adventures and, and, 
What's wrong? Why are you looking at me like that? You're only saying this to make me feel better, aren't you? I'm not. I swear. It all happened. Oh, but what's the good of telling me about it? It's all very well and good that you went there and it changed you. But we jolly well can't get there now, can we? I've been wondering about that. When we came back from that world, or that place, I still don't know what to call it, someone there said my cousins could never go there again. It was their third time, you see. I suppose they've had their share. But he never said I couldn't. And I can't help wondering, can we? Could we? Do something to make it happen? Yes. You mean, we might draw a circle on the ground and write strange letters in it and stand inside and recite charms and spells? Well, sort of. Though that's not how we got in before. And to be frank, I think all those circles and things are rather rot. I don't think he'd like them. It would look as if we thought we could make him do things, but really, we can only ask him. Who is this person you keep talking about? They call him Aslan in that place. Aslan? Mm. What a curious name. Not half so curious as he is. But let's get on. It can't do any harm just asking. Let's stand side by side. <clears throat> like this? Right. And we hold out our arms in front of us, with the palms facing down. Like they did in Romandu's island. Whose island? I'll tell you about that another time. And he might like us to face the east. Let's see, where is the east? Ah, that's the east, facing up into the laurels. Now, will you say the words after me? What words? The words I'm going to say, of course. Now. Aslan. 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 Please let the two of us go into your... Wait! What's that? Oh no! It's them! Hurry! Into the laurels! Ow. What now? Up the slope! to the moors and it's always locked so we can't escape we'll have to hope it's open now here it's sure to be locked oh by gum it's open how odd the sun is so bright mm. but it was gray and overcast a moment ago i can't see the moor eustace oh i say I think that's... I mean... Could it be Narnia? What? Is that your world? Come on, Jill. Do you want to go or not? But... Can we get back? Is it safe? Quick. Take my hand. We mustn't get separated. Separated? Oh, but what... Come on! Are we on the top of a mountain? I don't know. We must be. Look at the size of those trees. And I've never seen those kinds of birds before. 
I suspect you'll see a lot of things you've never seen before. The trees seem to stop just ahead. Perhaps it's the end of this forest. Let's go. It's a very lonely forest, isn't it? Oh, be careful, Jill. Why? You don't want to fall off the edge of the cliff, do you? Oh, my. I've never been up so high. It's nothing but blue sky ahead. I see. Are those sheep down there? They're clouds, I think. Clouds? They are. But what's beyond them? Is it a field? A wood? <laughs> I don't know. I can't see from here. Just stay back, will you? What's wrong with you? We're awfully high up. Please come away from the edge. I'm not a child, Eustace. And I'm certainly not afraid of heights. See? This doesn't bother me at all. What are you doing, Jill? Come back. Don't be an idiot. Don't call me names. Oh, it is a long way down. Take my hand, Jill. One could fall forever. Jill! I'm afraid. Then take my hand. But I don't dare move. I'll fall. Stay calm. My legs, they feel like putty. Right. Listen to me, Jill. To reach out and take your arm and pull you back. Don't move. No! Let me... Don't! I'm afraid. It's only a couple of steps. Do you hear? I'll take your arm. Eustace's voice seemed to be coming from a long way off. Jill felt him grabbing her. But by now she had no control over her own arms and legs. There was a moment struggling on the cliff edge. Jill was too frightened and dizzy to know quite what she was doing. But two things she remembered as long as she lived. One was that she had wrenched herself free of Eustace's clutches. The other was that at the same moment he himself had lost his balance. Fortunately, Jill was given no time to think over what she'd done, for a huge, brightly-coloured animal had rushed over and lay down next to her. It leaned over the edge of the cliff, and this was the odd thing, blue. It didn't roar or snort, but just blew from its wide-opened mouth, blowing out as steadily as a vacuum cleaner sucks in. Jill was so close to the creature that she could feel the breath vibrating steadily through its body. She was lying perfectly still because she couldn't get up. She was nearly fainting. Indeed, she wished she could really faint, but faints don't come for the asking. At last she saw, far away below her, a tiny black speck floating away from the cliff and slightly upwards. As it rose, it also got further away. By the time it was nearly on a level with the cliff top, it was so far off that she'd lost sight of it. It was obviously moving away from them at a great speed. Jill couldn't help thinking that the animal at her side was blowing at her. So she turned and looked at the creature. A lion! You're a lion! It must be a dream. It must. It must. Oh, I'll wake up in a moment. The lion rose to its feet and without a glance at Jill, gave one last blow. 
Then, as if satisfied with its work, it turned and stalked slowly away back into the forest. I do wish we'd never come to this dreadful place. I don't believe Eustace knew any more about it than I do. Or if he did, he had no business to bring me here without warning me what it was like. It's not my fault he fell over that cliff. If he'd left me alone, we would both be all right now. <laughs> oh, Eustace. <laughs> Crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. When Jill stopped, she found she was dreadfully thirsty. She'd been lying face downward, but now she sat up. She listened carefully and felt almost sure she heard the sound of running water. There was no sign of the lion, though there were so many trees it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. But her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up the courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoes, stealing cautiously from tree to tree and stopping to look round her at every step. Jill eventually came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream, lay the lion, with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If you're thirsty, you may drink. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Uh, Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst. Then drink. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? All right. Do you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise. Then, oh dear, I mean, I'm so thirsty, you see, and do you eat girls? Oh, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. I daren't come and drink. Then you will die of thirst. Oh dear. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who'd seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. 
It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she'd been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she'd finished. Now, she realized, this would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there, with her lips still wet from drinking. Come here. And she had to. She was almost between its front paws now, looking straight into its face. But she couldn't stand that for long. She lowered her eyes. Human child, where is the boy? He fell over the cliff, sir. How did he come to do that? human child. He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? I was showing off, sir. That is a very good answer, human child. Do so no more. And now the boy is safe. <sighs> I have blown him to Narnia. But your task will be the harder because of what you have done. What task, sir? The task for which I called you and him here, out of your own world. Um... Speak your thought, human giant. I was wondering, I mean, could there be some mistake? Because nobody called me in Eustace, you know. It was we who asked to come here. Eustace said we were to call to... to somebody. It was a name I wouldn't know. And perhaps a somebody would let us in. And we did. And then we found the door open. You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. Then you were the somebody, sir. I am. And now hear your task. Far from here in the land of Narnia, there lives an aged king who is sad because he has no prince of his blood to be king after him. He has no heir because his only son was stolen from him many years ago. And no one in Narnia knows where that prince went or whether he is still alive. But he is. I lay on you this command, that you seek this lost prince until either you have found him and brought him to his father's house, or else died in the attempt, or else gone back into your own world. But how, please? I will tell you, child. These are the signs by which I will guide you in your quest. First, as soon as the boy Eustace sets foot in Narnia, he will meet an old and dear friend. He must greet that friend at once. If he does, you will both have good health. Second, you must journey out of Narnia to the north till you come to the ruined city of the ancient giants. Third, 
You shall find a writing on a stone in that ruined city, and you must do what the writing tells you. Four, you will know the lost prince if you find him by this. That he will be the first person you have met in your travels who will ask you to do something in my name. In the name of Aslan. I see. Child, perhaps you do not see quite as well as you think. But the first step is to remember. Repeat to me, in order, the four signs. Oh, um, well... The first sign is that we'll go to a city of ancient giants. No, that's not right. Uh... No, child. It is important for you to remember them as I've said them. Try again. Jill tried again and still didn't get them quite right. So the lion corrected her and made her repeat them again and again till she could say them perfectly. He was very patient over this, so that when it was done, Jill plucked up the courage to ask him, Sir, how am I to get to Narnia? On my breath. Oh. I will blow you into the west of the world, as I blew Eustace. Shall I catch him in time to tell him the first sign? You will have no time to spare. That is why I must send you at once. Come, walk before me to the edge of the cliff. Sir, I realize now that if I hadn't made such a fool of myself, Eustace and I would have been going together, and he'd have heard all the instructions as well as me. It was very alarming walking back to the edge of the cliff especially as the lion did not walk with her, but behind her, making no noise on his soft paws. Long before she'd got anywhere near the edge, the lion said, Stand still. In a moment I will blow. But first, remember, remember, remember the sign. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And second, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind and the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. 
Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And now, daughter of Eve, farewell. The voice had been growing softer towards the end of this speech, and now it faded away altogether. Jill looked behind her. To her astonishment, she saw the cliff already more than a hundred yards behind her, and the lion himself, a speck of bright gold on the edge of it. She'd been setting her teeth and clenching her fists for a terrible blast of lion's breath. But the breath had really been so gentle that she hadn't even noticed the moment at which she left the earth. And now, there was nothing but air for thousands upon thousands of feet below her. Jill felt frightened only for a second. For one thing, the world beneath her was so very far away that it seemed to have nothing to do with her. For another, floating on the breath of the lion was so extremely comfortable. If Jill had ever been in a balloon, she might have thought it like that, only better. So you're here. I only just arrived. Oh, Eustace, it was magnificent. I flew. Oh, really? Yes, for hours and hours, it seemed. Though it was so soft and comfortable, it might have been less time. Or longer. <sighs> oh, I don't know. It was like a dream. And then I slowly came down and saw the ocean and the land and went through a cloud, which is how I got so wet. And then I saw this beautiful castle and this ship and, and I came down ever so gently in that thicket of trees over there. And, oh, Eustace, it was... It was... Oh, I do wish you'd stop jabbering on. I want to listen. The king's about to make a farewell speech, I think. What king? How many kings do you see? The old one there on the ship. Jill looked towards the ship and found its splendor so great she had a difficult time finding the king. It was a tall ship, with high forecastle and high poop, gilded and crimson, with a great flag at the masthead, and many banners waving from the decks, and a row of shields bright as silver along the bulwarks. The gangplank was laid to her, and Jill saw, at the foot of it, the king. He was an old, old man. He wore a rich mantle of scarlet which opened in front to show his silver mail shirt. There was a thin circlet of gold on his head. His beard, white as wool, fell nearly to his waist. His eyes were watery, and he looked as if a puff of wind could blow him away. He's making a farewell speech. Where is he going? How am I supposed to know? Is he the King of Narnia? Oh, bother! Stop asking so many questions! I don't know. I'm not even certain that this is Narnia. I thought you said you'd been here before. Well, you thought wrong then. But you told me! For heaven's sake, dry up and let's hear what they're saying. Jill turned to look again and noticed for the first time the people surrounding the King. If people is the right word, 
for only about one in every five was human. The rest were things you never see in our world. Fawns, satyrs, centaurs. And there were a lot of animals she knew well. Bears, badgers, moles, leopards, mice, and various birds. But then they were so very different from the animals which one called by the same names in England. Some of them were much bigger. The mice, for instance, stood on their hind legs and were over two feet high. But apart from their size, you could see by the expression in their faces that they could talk and think just as well as you could. And there were dwarfs, too. One in particular was next to the king, sitting in a little chair on wheels, which was harnessed to a little donkey, not much bigger than a large retriever. The dwarf was as richly dressed as the king. But because of his fatness, and because he was sitting hunched up among cushions, the effect was quite different. It made him look like a shapeless little bundle of fur and silk and velvet. He was as old as the king, but more hale and hearty, with very keen eyes. His bare head, which was bald and extremely large, shone like a gigantic billiard ball in the sunset light. The king was speaking to him, but Jill couldn't hear what was said, and as far as she could make out, the dwarf made no answer, though he nodded and wagged his head a great deal. Then the king raised his voice and addressed everyone present, but his voice was so old and cracked that she could understand very little of his speech, especially since it was about people and places she'd never heard of. The courtiers around them appeared to be greatly moved. Handkerchiefs were got out. Sounds of sobbing were heard in every direction. Jill was about to ask Eustace if he understood what the king had said or recognized any of the names he'd mentioned when she suddenly remembered the signs. Eustace, quick! Do you see anyone you know? What? There isn't a moment to lose. Don't you see some old friend here? Because you've got to go and speak to him at once. What are you talking about? It's Aslan, the lion. Says you've got to. I've seen him. Aslan, I mean. Oh, you have, have you? He said the very first person you saw in Narnia would be an old friend. And you've got to speak to him at once. Well, there's nobody here I've ever seen before. The king stooped and kissed the dwarf on both cheeks straightened himself, raised his right hand as if in blessing, and went slowly and with feeble steps up the gangway and on board the ship. The gangway was cast off, trumpets sounded, and the ship moved away from the quay. Now, I wonder what that was all about. Who are you two, if I may ask? There's something magic about you. I saw you arrive. You flew. Oh, my name is Eustace and this is Jill. Would you mind telling us where we are? In the land of Narnia, at the king's castle of Caer Paravel. Is that the king who just left on that ship? Too true, too true. But now you must tell me how you flew. Uh, we were sent here by Aslan. Oh, Aslan! This is almost too much for me. So early in the evening, I, I'm not quite myself till the sun's down. We've been sent to find the lost prince. It's the first I've heard about it. What prince? You better come and speak to the Lord Regent at once. That's him over there in the donkey carriage. Trumpkin the dwarf. What to do? What to do? Oh. Wait! 
What's the king's name? Caspian the Tenth. Caspian? <clears throat> Lord Regent. Hey, what's that? Two strangers, my lord. Rangers? What do you mean? I see two uncommonly grubby man-cubs. What do they want? My name's Jill. The girl's called Jill. The girls are killed? I don't believe a word of it. What girls? Who killed them? Nobody's been killed. Who? Nobody! Bilge and barnacles, you needn't shout. I'm not so deaf as all that. What do you mean by coming here to tell me that nobody's been killed? Why should anyone have been killed? Better tell them I'm Eustace. The boy's Eustace, my lord. Useless? I dare say he is. Is that any reason for bringing him to court, eh? Not useless. Eustace! I tell you what, Master Glimfeather. When I was a young dwarf, there used to be talking beasts and birds in this country who really could talk. There wasn't all this mumbling and muttering and whispering. Wouldn't have been tolerated for a moment, not for a moment. Now, hold on while I get me trumpet. Oh, I know it's around here somewhere. Trumpet? It's uh, as a hearing aid when he puts it to his ear. Ooh, ooh, my brain's a bit clearer now. Don't say anything about the lost prince. I'll explain later. It wouldn't do. Wouldn't do. Ah, there. Now, if you have anything sensible to say, Master Glimfeather, try and say it into the trumpet. Take a deep breath and don't attempt to speak too quickly. These two have been sent by Aslan to visit the court of Narnia. Manes and mandibles, sent by the lion himself, eh? And from... Mm, that other place, beyond the world's end, eh? Yes, my lord. Son of Adam and daughter of Eve. <laughs> well, my dears, you are very heartily welcome. If the good king, my poor master, had not this very hour set sail for seven isles, he would have been glad of your coming. <laughs> it would have brought back his youth to him for a moment. For a moment. And now, it is high time for supper. <laughs> you shall tell me your business in full council tomorrow morning. Master Glimfeather, see that bedchambers and suitable clothes and all else are provided for these guests in the most honourable fashion. And Glimfeather, in your ear. Yes, my lord. See that they're properly washed. <laughs> Gilbert? Yes, my lord? Take me back to the castle. As you wish, my lord. Yeah! Come along, then. Come on. What do we do now, Eustace? Follow Trumpkin to the castle, I suppose. It's the thing to do. Thing to do. Come in. Oh, here you are at last. I've been trying to find you for ever so long. I've had a bath. I see you have too. And don't you look odd in those Narnian clothes? No more than you. I say, Eustace, 
Isn't it all simply too exciting and scrumptious for words? Is that what you think it is? I wish to goodness we'd never come. Why on earth? I can't bear it, seeing the king, Caspian, a doddering old man like that. It's, uh, it's frightful. Why? Oh, you don't understand. Now that I come to think of it, you couldn't. I didn't tell you that this world has a different time from ours. How do you mean? The time you spend here doesn't take up any of our time. Do you see? Mm. I mean, however long we spend here, we should still get back to school at the moment we left it. That won't be much fun. And when you're back in England, our world, you can't tell how time is going here. It might be any number of years in Narnia, while we're having just one year at home. The Pevensies explained it all to me, but like a fool I forgot about it. And now apparently it's been about 70 years, Narnian years, since I was here last. Do you see now? And I come back and I find Caspian, an old, old man. Then the king was an old friend of yours. I should jolly well think he was. About as good a friend as a chap could have. And last time he was only a few years older than me. And to see that old man with a white beard, and to remember Caspian as he was the morning we captured the Lone Islands, or in the fight with the sea serpent. Oh, it's frightful. It's worse than coming back and finding him dead. It's far worse than you think. We missed the first sign. What do you mean? Aslan said, as soon as the boy Eustace sets foot in Narnia, he will meet an old and dear friend. He must greet that friend at once. If he does, you will both have good help. That was the first sign. There are three others, and they're all to help us find the lost prince. So you did see an old friend, just as mm. Aslan said, and you ought to have gone and spoken to him at once. And now you haven't, and everything is going wrong from the beginning. But how was I supposed to know? If you'd only listened to me when I tried to tell you, we'd be all right. Yes, and if you hadn't played the fool on the edge of that cliff and jolly nearly murdered me, uh, well... Murdered? Yes, I said murder. Then we'd have come together and both known what to do. Was he the first person you saw? You must have been here for hours before me. Are you sure you didn't see anyone else first? I was only here about a minute before you. He must have blown you quicker than me, making up for lost time, the time you lost. Don't be a beast, Eustace. Oh, oh hello. What's that? It was the castle bell ringing for supper. Both had a good appetite by this time and were astounded by the splendor and lavishness of the meal. Each course came in with trumpeters and kettle drums. There were soups and seafood, venison and fowl, pies and ices and jellies and fruits and nuts and all manner of drinks. Even Eustace cheered up. Much later, when they were dragging themselves upstairs to bed, yawning their heads off, Jill said, I bet we sleep well tonight. Which just shows how little anyone knows what's going to happen to them next. For once Jill was back in her room and about to get undressed for bed, she was startled by a tap on the window. What on earth is that? Oh, I hope they don't have giant moths in this country. Oh, it's a huge bird. But, oh, it's the owl. What are you doing at my window? Hush, hush, don't make a noise. Now, are you too really in earnest about what you've got to do? What we... about the lost prince, you mean? Yes, we've got to be. 
Good, then there's no time to lose. You must get away from here at once. I'll go and wake the other human, then I'll come back for you. You better change those court clothes and put on something you can travel in. I'll be back in tutus. But where are we going? It was most enjoyable. But why have you brought me to this tower? And where's Eustace? I'm here, Jill. Oh. We seem to be doing an awful lot of flying lately. I should say. Now I think we're all here. Let us hold a parliament of owls. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, I suppose all you chaps, owls I mean, know that King Caspian X, in his young days, sailed to the eastern end of the world. Well... I was with him on that journey. With him and Reaper Cheap the Mouse and the Lord Drinian and all of them. I know it sounds hard to believe, but people don't grow older in our world at the same speed as they do in yours. And what I want to say is this, that I'm the King's man, and if this Parliament of Owls is any sort of plot against the King, I'm having nothing to do with it. Oh, we're all the King's Owls. Ooh. What's this all about, then? It's only this, that if the Lord Regent, the Dwarf Trumpkin, hears you're going to look for the Lost Prince, he won't let you start. He'd rather keep you under lock and key. Great Scott! You don't mean that Trumpkin's a traitor? No, no. Trumpkin's no traitor. But more than 30 champions, knights, centaurs, good giants and all sorts have at one time or another set out to look for the lost prince and none of them have ever come back. And at last the king said he was not going to have all the bravest Narnians destroyed in the search for his son. And now nobody is allowed to go. Oh, but surely he'd let me go when he knew who I was and, and who had sent me. Sent both of us. Yes, I think very likely he would. But the king's away and Trumpkin will stick to the rules. He's as true as steel. But he's deaf as a post and very peppery. You could never make him see that this might be the time for making an exception to the rule. Oh, how long is the king going to be away? If only we knew. You see, there's been a rumour lately that Aslan himself has been seen in the islands, in Terabinthia, I think it was. And the king said he would make one more attempt before he died to see Aslan face to face again and ask his advice about who is to be king after him. But we're all afraid that if he doesn't meet Aslan in Terabinthia, he'll go on east to the Seven Isles, Lone Islands, and on and on. He never talks about it, but we all know he has never forgotten the voyage to the world's end. And I'm sure, in his heart of hearts, he wants to go there again. Then there's no good waiting for him to come back. Oh, no good. Oh, what a to-do, what a to-do. If only you two had known and spoken to him at once, he'd have arranged everything. Probably give you an army to go with you in search of the prince. Well, we'll just have to manage without. But there's just one more thing I want to know. 
If this owl's parliament, as you call it, is, is all fair and above board and means no mischief, why does it have to be so jolly secret, meeting in a ruined tower in dead of night and all that? Well, where else should we meet? When would anyone meet except at night? It would be unnatural to meet during the day, uh. in blazing sunlight. Then oh, everyone ought to be asleep. Oh, I take your point. Well, now, let's get on. Tell us all about the lost prince. An old owl, not Glimfeather, came forward and related the story. About ten years ago, when Rillian, the son of Caspian, was a very young knight, he rode with the queen his mother on a May morning in the north parts of Narnia. They had many squires and ladies with them, and all wore garlands of fresh leaves on their heads and horns at their sides. In the warm part of the day, they came to a pleasant glade where a fountain flowed freshly out of the earth, and there they dismounted and ate and drank and were merry. After a time, the queen felt sleepy, and they spread cloaks for her on the grassy bank, and Prince Rillian with the rest of the party went a little way from her, that their tales and laughter might not wake her. And so, presently, a great serpent came out of the thick wood and stung the queen in her hand. All heard her cry out and rush towards her, and Rillian was first at her side. He saw the serpent gliding away and made after it with his sword drawn. It was great, shining, and as green as poison, so that he could see it well. But it glided away into thick bushes and he could not come at it. So he returned to his mother and found them all busy about her. But they were busy in vain, for at the first glance of her face, Rillian knew that no physician in the world would do her good. As long as the life was in her, she seemed to be trying hard to tell him something. But she could not speak clearly, and whatever her message was, she died without delivering it. It was then hardly ten minutes since they'd first heard her cry. They carried the dead queen back to Care Paravel, and she was bitterly mourned by Rillian and by the king and by all Narnia. The queen had been a great lady, wise and gracious and happy. King Caspian's bride, whom he'd brought home from the eastern end of the world, and men said that the blood of the stars flowed in her veins. The prince took his mother's death very hard. After that, he was always riding on the northern marches of Narnia, hunting for that venomous serpent to kill it and be avenged. No one remarked much on this, though the prince came home from these wanderings, looking tired and distraught. But about a month after the Queen's death, some said they could see a change in him. There was a look in his eyes, as of a man who'd seen visions. And though he'd be out all day, his horse didn't bear the signs of hard riding. His chief friend among the older courtiers was the Lord Drinian, 
who had been his father's captain on that great voyage to the east parts of the earth. Your Highness. Yes, Lord Rillian? You must soon give over seeking the serpent. There is no true vengeance on a witless brute as there might be on a man. You weary yourself in vain. My lord, I have almost forgotten the serpent these past seven days. Uh, uh, why, if that were so, do you ride so continually in the northern woods? My lord, I have seen there the most beautiful thing that was ever made. Uh, uh, fair prince, oh, of your courtesy... Let me ride with you tomorrow, that I also may see this fair thing with a good will. The next day they saddled their horses and rode at a great gallop into the northern woods and alighted at that same fountain where the queen had been bitten by the serpent. Drinian thought it strange that the prince should choose that place of all places to linger in. And there they rested till it came to high noon. And at noon, Drinian looked up and saw the most beautiful lady he had ever seen. She stood at the north side of the fountain and said no word, but beckoned to the prince with her hand as if she bade him come to her. She was tall and great, shining and wrapped in a thin garment as green as poison. And the prince stared at her like a man out of his wits. But suddenly, the lady was gone. Drinian knew not where, and the two returned to Care Paravel. It struck Drinian's mind that this shining green woman was evil. Drinian knew he ought to tell this adventure to the king, but he had little wish to be a blab or a talebearer. And so he held his tongue. But afterwards, he wished he had spoken. For next day, Prince Rillian rode out alone. That night he did not return. And from that hour, no trace of him was ever found in Narnia or any neighboring land. And neither his horse, nor his hat, nor his cloak, nor anything else was ever found. Lord King, slay me speedily as a great traitor. For by my silence, I have destroyed your son. Drinian, I have lost my queen and my son. Shall I lose my friend also? <laughs> Such was the story of Rillian. Now oh, I bet that serpent and that woman were the same person. Oh, true, true. We think the same as you, but we don't think she killed the prince. We know she didn't. Aslan told me he was still alive somewhere. Oh, that almost makes it worse. It means she has some use for him and some deep scheme against Narnia. What makes you think so? Long, long ago, at the very beginning, a white witch came out of the north and bound our land in snow and ice for a hundred years. And we think this may be some of the same crew. Very well, then. Jill and I have got to go and find this prince. Can you help us? 
Have you any clue, you two? Yes, we know we've got to go north. And we know we've got to reach the ruins of a giant city. Oh! Oh! oh. oh. What's wrong with everyone? Well, I believe what the Parliament is trying to say is that they're sorry that they themselves cannot go with you on your search for the lost prince. But, but you would want to travel by day and they would want to travel by night. It, no, it wouldn't do. It wouldn't do. Well, whether you come or not, we still have to go. How do I find this ruined city of giants? Oh, well, if you want to go that way to Ettensmore, we can take you to one of the Marsh Wiggles. They're the only people who can help you much. Come along, then. I'll take one. Who'll take the other? Ah, it must be done tonight. Oh, I'll take one, Glimfeather, but only as far as the Marsh Wiggles. Right. Are you ready? I am. So am I. Then off we go. It's on the lion's business. Ooh, we're in the middle of nowhere. Are you sure someone's here? Look, there's a light in the distance. Owls ahoy! What is it? Is the king dead? Has an enemy landed in Narnia? Is it flood? Or dragons, I shouldn't wonder. The voice and the dim light came closer and closer out of the darkness. When the light reached them, it turned out to be that of a large lantern. Jill could see very little of the person who held it. He seemed to be all legs and arms. The owls were talking to him, explaining everything, but she was too tired to listen. She tried to wake herself up a bit when she realized that they were saying goodbye to her. But she could never afterwards remember much except that sooner or later she and Eustace were stooping to enter a low doorway and then were lying down on something soft and warm. And a voice was saying, There you are. Best we can do. You'll lie cold and hard. Damp too, I shouldn't wonder. Won't sleep a wink, most likely. Even if there isn't a thunderstorm or a flood. Oh, the wigwam doesn't fall down on top of us all as I've known them do. Must make the best of it. What? Mm, I didn't say anything. Oh. oh. Where on earth are we? In the wigwam of a marsh wiggle. A what? A marsh wiggle. Don't ask me what it is. I couldn't see it last night. I'm getting up. Let's go and look for it. Oh, how beastly one feels after sleeping in one's clothes. I was just thinking how nice it was not to have to dress. Or wash either, I suppose. Typical boy. <laughs> oh, what do you see? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. we we're in the middle of a marsh. Let me see. What Eustace and Jill saw outside was quite unlike the bit of Narnia they'd seen on the day before. 
They were on a great flat plain which was cut into countless little islands by countless channels of water. The islands were covered with coarse grass and bordered with reeds and rushes. Sometimes there were beds of rushes, about an acre in extent. Clouds of birds were constantly alighting in them and rising from them again. Duck, snipe, bitterns and herons. Many wigwams, like that in which they passed the night, could be seen dotted about, but all at a good distance from one another, for marsh wiggles are people who like privacy. Except for the fringe of the forest, several miles to the south and west of them, there was not a tree in sight. It would have been a depressing place on a wet evening. Seen under the morning sun, with the fresh wind blowing and the air filled with the crying of the birds, there was something fine and fresh and clean about its loneliness. The children felt their spirits rise. Where's the uh, thingamy got to, I wonder? The marsh wiggle. I expect he... Oh, hello. That must be him over there. Come on. What's he doing? Fishing, I think. As they drew nearer, the figure turned its head and showed them a long, thin face with rather sunken cheeks, a tightly shut mouth, a sharp nose, and no beard. He was wearing a high-pointed hat like a steeple with an enormously wide, flat brim. The hair, if it could be called hair, which hung over his large ears, was greeny-gray, and each lock was flat rather than round, so that they were like tiny reeds. Although his body was not much bigger than a dwarf's, he had very long legs and arms, which would have made him taller than most men when he stood up. The fingers of his hands were webbed like a frog's, and so were his bare feet, which dangled in the muddy water. He was dressed in earth-coloured clothes, which hung loose about him. His expression was solemn, his complexion muddy, and you could see at once that he took a very serious view of life. Good morning, guests. And you. Good morning. Though when I say good, I don't mean it won't probably turn to rain, or it might be snow, or fog, or thunder. You didn't get any sleep, I dare say. Yes, we did, though. We had a lovely night. Ah, I see you're making the best of a bad job. That's right. You've been well brought up, you have. You've learned to put a good face on things. Uh, please, we don't know your name. Paddleglum's my name. But it doesn't matter if you forget it, I can always tell you again. I'm trying to catch a few eels to make an eel stew for our dinner. Oh, I shouldn't wonder if I didn't get any. And you won't like them much if I do. Oh, why not? Why? It's not in reason that you should like our sort of victuals, though I've no doubt you'll put a bold face on it. All the same, while I am catching of them, if you two could try to light the fire, no harm trying. The wood's behind the wigwam. It may be wet. You could light it inside the wigwam, and then we'd all get the <coughs> smoke in our eyes. Oh. Or you could light it outside, and then the rain would come and put it out. Here's my tinderbox. Thank you. You won't know how to use it, I expect. But Eustace had learned that sort of thing on his last adventure. 
The children ran back together to the wigwam and found the wood, which was perfectly dry, and succeeded in lighting a fire with rather less than the usual difficulty. Eustace took care of it while Jill had a wash. After that, she saw to the fire, and he had a wash. And presently, the marsh wiggle joined them. In spite of his expectation of catching no eels, he had a dozen or so which he'd already skinned and cleaned. He put a big pot on and mended the fire. Now, those eels will take a mortal long time to cook, and either of you might faint with hunger before they're done. So, to keep your minds off your hunger, we may as well talk about our plans. Yes, do let's. Can you help us to find Prince Rillian? Well, I don't know that you'd call it help. I don't know that anyone can exactly help. It stands to reason we're not likely to get very far on a journey to the north. Not at this time of the year, with the winter coming on soon and all. And an early winter, too, by the look of things. But you mustn't let that make you downhearted. Very likely, what with enemies and mountains and rivers to cross and losing our way and next to nothing to eat and sore feet, we'll hardly notice the weather. And if we don't get far enough to do any good, we may get far enough not to get back in a hurry. You keep saying we. Are you coming with us? Oh, yes. I'm coming, of course. Might as well, you see. I don't suppose we shall ever see the king back in Narnia now that he's set off to foreign parts and he had a nasty cough when he left. Then there's Trumpkin. He's failing fast and you'll find there'll have been a bad harvest after this terrible dry summer and I shouldn't wonder if some enemy attacked Narnia. Mark my words. And how shall we start? Well, all the others who ever went looking for Prince Rillian started from that same fountain where the Lord Drinian saw the lady. They went north, mostly, and as none of them ever came back, we can't exactly say how they got on. We've got to start by finding a ruined city of giants. Aslan said so. Got to start by finding it, have we? Not allowed to start by looking for it, I suppose? That's what I meant, of course. And then, when we found it... If... Doesn't anyone know where it is? I don't know about anyone. And I won't say I haven't heard of that ruined city. You wouldn't start from the fountain, though. You'd have to go across Ettingsmoor. That's where the ruined city is. If it's anywhere. But I've been as far in that direction as most people. I never got to any ruins, so I won't deceive you. Where's Ettingsmoor? Look over there, northward. See those hills and bits of cliff? That's the beginning of Ettingsmoor. But there's a river between it and us, the River Shribble. No bridges, of course. I suppose we can ford it, though. Well, it has been forded. Perhaps we can meet people on Ettingsmoor who can tell us the way. You're right about meeting people. What sort of people live there? It's not for me to say that they aren't all right in their own way, if you like their way. Yes, but what are they? There are so many strange creatures in this country. I mean, are they animals or birds or dwarfs or what? Don't you know? I thought the owls had told you. They're giants. But, But the king told me long ago, that time I was with him at sea, that he'd jolly well beaten those giants in a war and made them pay him tribute. That's true enough. They're at peace with us, all right. 
as long as we stay on our own side of the shrivel, they won't do us any harm. Over on their side, on the moor, ooh, still there's always a chance. If we don't get near any of them, and if none of them forget themselves, and if we're not seen, it's just possible we might get a long way. Oh, look here. I don't believe the whole thing can be half as bad as you're making out. Huh? Aslan would never have sent us if there was so little chance as all that. That's the spirit, Eustace. That's the way to talk. Put a good face on it. But we all need to be very careful about our tempers. Seeing all the hard times we shall have to go through together won't do to quarrel, you know. At any rate, don't begin it too soon. I know these expeditions usually end that way, knifing one another, I shouldn't wonder, before it's all done. But the longer we can keep off it... If you feel so hopeless, I think you'd better stay behind. Jill and I can go on alone, can't we, Jill? Oh, shut up, Eustace. Don't you lose heart, Jill. I'm coming sure and certain. I'm not going to lose an opportunity like this. It will do me good. They all say, I mean, the other Wiggles all say, that I'm too flighty. Don't take life seriously enough. If they've said it once, they've said it a thousand times. Paddle glum, they've said. You're altogether too full of bobbins and bounce and high spirits. You've got to learn that life isn't all fricasseed frogs and eeyore pie. You want something to sober you down a bit. That's what they say. Now, a job like this, a journey up north, just as winter's beginning, looking for a prince that probably isn't there by way of a ruined city that no one has ever seen, it'll be just the thing. If that doesn't steady a chap, I don't know what will. Now, let's see how those eels are getting on. When the meal came, it was delicious, and the children had two large helpings each, though the marsh wiggle said they were only being polite. The rest of the day was spent in preparation for an early start the next morning. Puddle Glum, being the biggest, said he would carry three blankets with a large bit of bacon rolled up inside them. Jill was to carry the remains of the eels, some biscuit and the tinderbox. Eustace was to carry both his own cloak and Jill's when they didn't wear them. Puddleglum also took his best bow and gave his second best to Eustace, who had learned some shooting when he sailed to the east under Caspian. They also took two swords and a knife. All three went to bed early in the wigwam. This time the children really had a rather bad night. That was because Puddleglum snored so loudly and continuously that when Jill at last got to sleep, she dreamed all night about road drills, waterfalls, and being in express trains. side of the shrivel. Which way from here? Uh, west, through that shallow gorge. No, 
The giants mainly live along the side of that gorge. Oh. You might say the gorge was like a street to them. Mm. We do better straight ahead, even though it's a bit steep. <sighs> they set out. It was good springy ground for walking and a day of pale winter sunlight. As they got deeper into Ettensmoor, their loneliness increased. They halted for a rest and drink in a little hollow by a stream. When they set out again, Jill noticed that the rocky edge of the gorge had drawn nearer, and the rocks were less flat, more upright than they had been. In fact, they were like little towers of rock. And what funny shapes they were. I do believe that all those stories about giants might have come from those funny rocks. What do you mean? If you were coming along here when it was half dark, hmm? you could easily think those piles of rocks were giants. Hmm. <laughs> yes, look at that one. You could almost imagine that lump on top was a head. Hmm. It would be rather too big for the body, but it would do well enough for an ugly giant. <laughs> <laughs> and all that bushy stuff. Hmm. I suppose it's heather and bird's nests, really. They do quite well for hair and beard. Hmm. And the things sticking out on each side, they're quite like ears. <laughs> they are giants. What? Don't stop. Keep straight on. Don't look at them. And whatever you do, don't run. They'll be after us in a moment. But there must be dozens of them. Don't. <laughs> what are they doing? Are they eating those rocks at us? No. We'd be a good deal safer if they were. Huh? They are trying to hit that mound of stones over there on the right. It's a game they play. About the only one they're clever enough to understand. Oh, did it, you know. Safe enough. They're such very bad shots. Oh, oh, Stay close together. Oh, look out! That was close. It was a horrible time. There seemed no end to the line of giants, and they never ceased hurling stones, some of which fell extremely close. After about 25 minutes, the giants apparently had a quarrel. This put an end to their game. They stormed and jeered at one another in long, meaningless words of about 20 syllables each. They then hit each other on the head with great clumsy stone hammers, but their skulls were so hard that the hammers bounced off again. By the end of an hour, all the giants were so hurt that they sat down and began to cry. When they sat down, their heads disappeared behind the edge of the gorge so that you saw them no more. But Jill could hear them howling and boo-hooing like great babies even after the place was a mile behind. Uh, uh, I'm afraid we'll have to sleep on the moor tonight. I know the ground is hard and lumpy, but you'll feel more comfortable if you think how very much colder it will be later on and further north. Thank you, Puddle Glum.